When I was over in uh, Africa earlier this year, it was um, around about April and it was towards the end of the trip and was been there for about three weeks uh, and they asked, would you like a favourite? You can pick a favourite song. And I thought, I'm, I'm really missing home. So I picked Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. So I thought, I hear that every week at coughs and it just makes me feel like home. So it was really, really good. It's the, uh, the sounds of home. Just want to give the Lord praise. Um, this last couple of days was, as you are um, sure are aware, a volatile couple of days of weather throughout New South Wales. Um, there were a lot of fires, there was uh, terrible winds, um, and in the places that we were driving um, from the north coast down towards Sydney, um, one family was, they pulled in for a break at Foster and couldn't get back to the highway. They had to take a, a detour and there were embers falling around the car everywhere. So the Lord was able to keep them safe. Um, Ethan was telling us that on the way to the wedding, there was a fallen tree over the highway, so they couldn't get through. They had to take a detour. Uh, sadly, they followed Levi's directions and it took them a lot longer than they thought. <laughs> but uh, it was a wonderful time of deliverance. Um, the Lord was merciful. Uh, everything went on time. Uh, the church building was creaking and moving the whole way through the service, um, but it was a blessing. Uh, the Lord was truly uh, merciful and he's able to control all things, even the weather, even at its most extreme. Tonight I'd like you to turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 4, please. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Ecclesiastes 4, and we're going to read verses 1 through 12. We're going to treat this as a section, but we won't be able to get through the whole section tonight. Ecclesiastes chapter 4 and verse 1. So I returned and considered all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of such as were oppressed, and they had no comforter. And on the side of their oppressors there was power, but they had no comforter. Wherefore I praise the dead, which are already dead, more than the living, which are yet alive. Yea, better is he than both they, which had not yet been born, who hath not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. Again I considered all travail, and every right work, that for this a man is envied of his neighbour. This is also vanity and vexation of spirit. The fool foldeth his hands together, and eateth his own flesh. Better is an handful with quietness, than both the hands full with travail and vexation of spirit. Then I returned and I saw vanity under the sun. There is one alone, and there is not a second. Yea, he hath neither child nor brother, yet is there no end of all his labour, neither is his eye satisfied with riches, neither saith he, For whom do I labour and bereave my soul of good? This is also vanity, yea, it is a sore travail. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him that is alone when he falleth, for he hath not another to help him up. Again, if two lie together, then they have heat. But how can one be warm alone? And if one prevail against him, two shall withstand him. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Let's pray and commit our time to the Lord. 
Our Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for your mercy, for your grace. Uh, Lord, truly every good thing that we receive at your hand is a blessing of mercy and grace. For we know, Lord, that we don't deserve any good thing that we receive from you. Lord, we thank you that tonight we sit with the word of God in our own language as an act of your mercy. We thank you that we sit in a church that teaches truth as an act of your mercy. We thank you, Lord, that we have our health. We thank you, Lord, that we have our lives. And Lord, we know that we are before you a blessed people. Lord, I pray that tonight we would, with thankful hearts, turn to your word and see how we might grow to be more like what you want us to be. Lord, help us to be just one step closer to understanding and doing the things that you would have for Christ-like ones. We pray and ask, Lord, that you would bless our time, help it to be fruitful. We pray that you would show us something from your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Solomon talks in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 1 to 12 about some things that we could call inevitable trials. Inevitable trials. And it was the inevitability of these trials that seemed to disturb Solomon. He looked and saw that there were some people who were oppressed and there was no one to help them. This, to him, was inevitable. He saw that there were some who worked really hard and for their hard work they were um, envied. And this was inevitable. He saw that there was uh, someone who was not doing enough work. Uh, he was eating his own flesh and this attitude to him was inevitable. And then finally, the lonely the lonely state was, to many people, an inevitable one. These things disturbed Solomon. Uh, it disturbed him because he could see that they were so widespread and in so many different countries, as he was an international man, he could see that the widespread nature of these things showed that they were very, very hard to fight against. And they were a trouble. They troubled his heart. They troubled him to great lengths, and we'll see that uh, when we get to our first point. But Solomon's trouble with these things, I think we need to address. Now, oftentimes we look at, especially these, um, then we're going to look at four different areas of these uh, things that Solomon found inevitable, and we find the frustration of them. We find them troubling to our hearts, and I'm sure that as we go through each of them tonight, you'll see that each of these things do trouble us from time to time, especially when we think about people who are going through them. But on the other hand, we have a responsibility as believers. The Bible tells us in a number of places, both in the Old and New Testaments, that we have a responsibility towards our neighbor. And our responsibility towards our neighbor can be summed up in that neat little phrase, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, Thou shalt not avenge nor bear grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. And then in the New Testament, Mark 12, 29 to 31, And Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like, namely this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. And if we were to practice that commandment, love thy neighbor as thyself, we would see the inevitability of these sufferings drastically reduced in our world. 
The things that Solomon was frustrated with, seeing in the lives of other people, and it brought him to great frustration and sadness. If we would love, as the Bible says, to love, we would drastically reduce our own mourning over the sufferings of others and the very sufferings of those people who are going through it. Let me show you four areas that we can do that tonight as we look through what are really three frustrations that Solomon finds in the world that he sees under the sun. We often think about this idea of loving our neighbor, um, but how do we quantify that? How do we uh, qualify that? How do we make sure that we are doing that and do we doing it to the fullest of our ability? Uh, to love our neighbor, to say, well, I'm going to look for a chance to preach the gospel to them and then I can tick the box that I've loved my neighbor. It's not enough. It's not good enough, especially for people who know the quality of love, such as people who have been loved by God. We need to do better than that as Christians. We need to know that the gospel is the most important thing for people, but we can give them so much more. And we ought to. The first thing that we can do for people is to comfort to comfort, have a look at Ecclesiastes chapter 4. We'll see Solomon's first frustration, verses 1 to 3. So I returned. This is a way of Solomon saying, so I started looking again at the things that I've been looking at in the world. So I returned and considered all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of such as were oppressed. Can you picture that? Tears of such as were oppressed, and they had no comforter. And on the side of their oppressors there was power, but they had no comforter. Wherefore I praised the dead which were already dead, more than the living which are yet alive. Yea, better is he than both they which had not yet been, who hath not seen all the evil work that is done under the sun. This idea that Solomon takes up at the start of chapter 4 is similar to the idea of corruption that we saw at the end of chapter 3 where in the place of righteousness there was wickedness and Solomon was upset that those who should have been doing well weren't doing well. Oppression is similar but somewhat distinct in that oppression is the use of power to deprive others of their rights and freedoms, specifically by domination. One person described oppression this way. Oppression is the systematic, the systemic, sorry, and institutional abuse of power by one group at the expense of others and the use of force to maintain this dynamic. The abuse of power by one group at the expense of others and the use of force to maintain this dynamic. And it's pictured beautifully by Solomon here. Sadly, but sadly beautifully. Where he says in verse 1, And behold the tears of such as were oppressed. When people are pushed down, when people are oppressed, that is what we saw before, the expense of their rights and freedoms, there are tears, causes pain, causes fear. As we look at Solomon's picture, we can think of images that we might have seen on the news. We can think of stories that we might have heard of that saddens us. And we think of the other side of the equation that Solomon spoke about in verse 1. Behold the tears of such as were oppressed and they had no comforter. And on the side of their oppressors, there was power. You think of those in power with the guns, with the government, with the money, 
with the influence. And those who are underneath, all they have are tears and injuries and loss. This has been happening ever since the beginning of power, hasn't it? Ever since sin entered into the world and people discovered that they could exercise power over others who ought to be their equals. We see this happening in minority religious groups around the world. We know that it happened in the early church. Many early church, many Christians of the early church were put to death for their faith. And they were brought before governments and tortured and beaten simply for being Christians. Despicable treatment. We see it not only in Christians, and we have to admit that. We see people being burdened with oppressive governments all around the world. The Rohingyas are one example of people who are pressed out of their homeland and facing terrible things. We know back in 2014 when ISIS was at their height. A quote, I'll quote to you this. In 2014, radical Muslims under the banner of ISIS spray-painted the Arabic letter And it's quoted there, which is the letter N, on the homes or businesses of Christians in northern Iraq. The property owners were publicly identified as Christ followers and given a choice to convert to Islam, leave or die. The courageous believers refused to deny their faith and more than 100,000 fled with little more than the clothes on their backs. You know, ISIS is a name that grabs headlines, isn't it? It's a name that everyone's familiar with and we've seen a number of the things that have been going on over there in Iraq, uh, also pushing through the rest of the Persian Gulf. But there are many oppressions in the world that aren't publicized. There are many, many people who are dying for Christ right now and no one knows about it. You think about the poor Christians who are being kept in prison cells or are being abused by those who shouldn't be abusing them, maybe not governments at all, and they're about to die and will die with no one to come and rescue them, and no one knows them. We will never know their name. They will die for their faith, unknown. Terrible thought that that's happening in our world right now. But it is. No foreign army pushes through the doors at the last minute and rescues them. There is no legal help, even though it's obvious to everyone around that there is no grounds for their persecution and prosecution. But there's no one there to help. And there's certainly no regulation of the treatment that these governments or these power groups call criminals. And not only religious, we know this happens in many other spheres as well. People are persecuted for their race. They're persecuted for their political persuasion. Or they're persecuted for who they're associated with. But you know, it happens closer to home, doesn't it? it happens in the home. How many tears are shed in the bedrooms of the oppressed? People who know that if they go out when dad's voice is raised, they might not come back into their room again. Horrible thoughts. This is why Solomon was so upset about this picture. It's not about someone receiving punishment for the wrong thing and they go and get sad about it and get over it and move on. This is people dying for wrong reasons. People never, never being able to think about freedom their whole life. 
knowing that their children are going to be brought up in a world where they'll have no opportunity. We don't know what that's like, and we probably never will. But many, many people in this world live in that reality. So sad to think about that sort of oppression. It was so sad that it caused Solomon to go on and state verses 2 and 3. He says, Wherefore I praise the dead, which are already dead more than the living, which are yet alive. Yea, better is he than both they, which hath not yet been, who hath not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. Solomon said it's better off to be dead than have to watch all of these people go through this. It's better off to be dead than to have to be one of those people suffering persecution, suffering oppression, even in the home. It's better off to get out of it and to be dead. Now, Solomon is not saying here that it's better to be dead than to be serving God, is he? He's saying specifically in this sphere, it is better off to be dead than to be being oppressed because the dead can't be oppressed. He's not saying go out and take your own life. That's not what he's saying at all. He's saying it is better for a dead person in this situation because they don't have to face up to this sort of oppression. But then he thought, well, hang on a second. A dead person knew that oppression. They saw it and they had to go through the pain of knowing what it was. Even if they're not going through that pain anymore, they did see it in their lifetime. So it would be even better to have not entered into this world and seen that at all. Better is the person who was never born, who never had the knowledge of that. As I mentioned before, this book is written in the focus of life under the sun. If there is God, if there is no God in the picture, no spiritual life in the picture, then we are better off dead than having to observe the oppressions that are under this world. But specifically, and really to bring this to a focus, why is it so sad? Why does Solomon find this so sad? It's not just because people are being oppressed. It's not just because of the violence. It's not just because people are being terribly wicked. But he says there in Ecclesiastes chapter 4 and verse 1, So I returned and considered all the oppressions that are under the sun, and behold, the tears of such as were oppressed, and they had no comforter. And on the side of their oppressors there was power, but they had no comforter. You get his point? He says it twice. They have no comforter. Now surely they have no one to rescue them. There is no one to break through the doors and say, this is not right, stop everything, let's look after these people. Sure, that would be comforting, wouldn't it? But this word comfort is even broader than that. It doesn't just entail someone stepping in and stopping the oppressions from happening, but it also includes the person who sees the oppression happen, knows that it's wrong, and sees that person walk away and goes up and puts their hand on their shoulder and says, you know what? I'm sad for you. That shouldn't have happened. There is no one to comfort that's why Solomon is so sad. There is no one to comfort, no one to console. And you know what, brethren? We can't stop oppression throughout this world. It's impossible. And people become depressed and anxious trying to stop oppression throughout the whole world. We can't. But you know what we can do? We can comfort we can be the ones who take it upon ourselves to see that situation and go up 
and comfort that person who's been through it. You know, there are so many families who have moved to Coffs Harbour from other places because it was unsafe for them to live in their home countries. Children who watched family members die. People who know of their relatives right now who are at threat of war. And you know what they need? They need a comforter. Who should do that job? Doesn't it fall to the people who know comfort better than anybody else? Doesn't it fall to the people who have been comforted by the God of all comfort more than anybody else? Doesn't it fall to us? When we see an opportunity, when we see a person suffering, doesn't it fall to us? To minimize how many people are suffering out there, to minimize the inevitability of suffering by being a comforter to those that we can. We can't fix everyone, can we? But we can certainly help the problem. We need to go from people being, isn't it sadders, to people who say, I'm here for you. It's very easy, isn't it, to watch it and say, that's so sad. I'm so moved by it. Even to shed a tear. It doesn't comfort. Comfort is a listening ear. Comfort is a sympathetic wallet. Comfort is the discipline of prayer for those who are suffering. Comfort is the decision to go and make a difference where we can. Comfort is sharing the hope of the gospel with those who need it the most. And so when Solomon saw the oppressed and he saw how much they were suffering, he knew that they needed a comforter. And brethren, we need to be those comforters. But you know what? We need to go further than that sometimes. The second way that we can be a loving person or that we can love our neighbors is not only to comfort, but that we can contend. We can contend for our neighbors. Solomon's problem here is one, that there was no one to comfort, but also that there was power on the side of the oppressors. Those who were doing the damage had all the power, all the voice, all the money. And the question that we need to ask ourselves is, are we really powerless to stop oppression? Are we really powerless? I would suggest to you that we are not powerless to stop oppression. We are powerless to stop all oppression. But we're not powerless to stand up for some. Can we, in some cases, supply the oppressed with some power? Can we stand on their side and give them some force so that they're not by themselves, so that they're not lonely, so that they're not powerless, resourceless? Can we stand with them? Can we be the person who stands up and says, no, stop talking about that person. This conversation is not right. That's standing on the side of the powerless against those with the power. We can stand up and we can report abuse when we see it rather than saying somebody else will do it. Or rather than saying, well, that person probably had a good reason for abusing that person. We can stand up and say, no, this needs to stop and I need to be part of the reason, part of the way to stop it. Young people, you're not too young to make a difference. You can stop a bully from becoming a bully 
by standing up in the playground and saying, hey, this is not right. Shouldn't be treating that person like that. Even if you become the target of bullying, you're supplying that person who is powerless and oppressed with a friend and with a voice. Be someone who pushes for change. Now, we just had two very disturbing pieces of legislation go through our government. Same-sex marriage bill goes against what the Bible teaches and the abortion bill goes against what the Bible teaches. What did we do about it? Did we take a stand? Did we try and share what the Bible says in a tactful way? Or did we allow those with the power to go against what the Bible said to do? You know, your local members are there to represent your thoughts. And in order to do that, you have to tell them what your thoughts are. Write them a letter, phone call, go and visit them, whatever it needs to be. Push for change. We can do that. It's within the law to do that. (laughs) We're good citizens if we do that. It was John Stuart Mill, not the other person this is usually associated with, who said this, Bad men need nothing more to compass their needs than that good men should look on and do nothing. All bad people need for them to be able to accomplish what they want to do is for those who could do good to do nothing. There is a helplessness about many forms of oppression that serve to upset and to frustrate us. And I'm sure you've been there. I'm sure you've been upset. I'm sure you've been frustrated. But let's not be still when we can do something. There are many times when we can't. So let's not waste a chance when we can. Now Jesus took this opportunity. Let's have a look at John chapter 8. John chapter 8. And we'll just read from verse 1. John chapter 8 and verse 1, it says, Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple. And all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. Verse 3, And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down, and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone. And the woman standing in the midst, when Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Now this woman was in the position of the oppressed. You might say, but she was guilty. Who's not? 
She was guilty. Of course she was. But you know, if this law was being practiced properly, then it wouldn't have just been the woman that was brought before the Lord Jesus, but the man who was involved in this sin as well, because that's what the law says. These Pharisees were taking an opportunity to oppress someone who was powerless in order to challenge the Lord Jesus Christ in front of everyone. And Jesus wasn't going to have a bar of it. When the crowd came, and you can imagine just how many there would have been in this crowd, not because they were concerned about what this woman had done, but mostly because they were concerned about trying to show the Lord Jesus Christ for who they thought he was. When that big crowd came and said, hey, condemn this woman. I think it's remarkable that Jesus stood with the woman. Not with a sin, because later on in the story, he told her, go forth and sin no more. What you've done is not right. But what they're doing is not right because they're condemning you. They're oppressing you. This was a woman who had very, very little power, especially in those days. I wonder if we can identify with this situation. Think of someone that perhaps we could stand with in this situation and just minimize how many times people have to face their oppressors alone or under-resourced. So in that first section, we need to be comforters and we need to be contenders for those who can't do it for themselves. But thirdly, moving on into the next section, verses 4 to 6, we need to help our neighbor to love our neighbor by being content. Verses 4 to 6. And again, I considered all travail and every right work that for this a man is envied of his neighbor. This is also vanity and vexation of spirit. The fool foldeth his hands together and eateth his own flesh. Better is a handful of qu- with quietness than both the hands full with travail and vexation of spirit. It's a good thing when kids are kids to teach them that you get stuff by saving for it. Stuff just doesn't grow on trees. You don't get the things that you need in life just by hoping that they'll turn up. But you have to work hard, you have to save for it, and finally, when the day comes, you'll get it. We save for things that we want. Sometimes we save for things that we need. We have an attractive house, perhaps. We have an impressive personal appearance by the effort that we put into a diet, or into exercise, or into making up in the morning, whatever it might be. Things that are desired come by hard work. But the rewards of that labor are not just enjoyable for us, they also then make us targets of envy. Which Solomon is saying, this is the vanity of the whole process. I work hard for something, then when I finally get that thing, what I get from other people is envy as a result. I get bad for the hard work that I've invested. And not only is the hard work hard, but the results of that hard work bring me uh, enmity with other people. It causes tension with others. And so as Solomon saw, this makes hard work vain. And it also reduces its purpose because it makes us a little bit miserable as a result of what we get because of all of our hard work. 
And so for those who work towards targets, and I hope this is a number of us, but for those who work towards targets, Solomon has some advice, and this is good advice. He says in verse four, chapter 4 and verse 5, first of all, just to put this out of reach for those who are starting to think down this track, Ecclesiastes 4, 5, The fool foldeth his hands together and eateth his own flesh. Someone might read verse 4, If you work hard, you're going to have to work hard. That's pretty natural. But if you work hard, you're going to have to work hard, and then the things that you get as a result of working hard, people are just going to envy you for. Therefore, some people might say, don't work hard. <laughs> Be lazy. Don't go to work because you're just going to have to work hard and people are just going to envy you for what you've got. You become an enemy to a number of your friends anyway. So just be lazy. Do nothing. Life will be better. Well, Solomon wants to put that out of reach, first of all, and say, well, this is just ridiculous. He says, the fool foldeth his hands together and eateth his own flesh. <laughs> the fool who does nothing, who does this, ends up with nothing. And so he consumes himself because that's all he's got to eat. So not working is certainly not the answer to this problem. What is the answer then? Well, he says in verse 6, Better is an handful with quietness than both the hands full with travail and vexation of spirit. Better to live a life that is modest, that doesn't attract too much attention, for which we're constantly exhausting ourselves than to work too hard, and bring animosity from other people. Better to have one hand full and contentment with it and peace than to have two hands full and weariness and envy. Notice that those words that he associates with uh, both the hands full in verse 6 are a combination of two things in verse 5. See in verse, sorry, in verse 4 it says, Again, I considered all travail and every right work. That word travail is talking about the hardness of the work. And then at the end of verse 4, he says, a man is envied of his neighbor. This is also vanity and vexation of spirit. So he says, as a result of having both the hands full, it's a result of travailing, working really hard, and we're being envied by other people. So both the process and the result cause us pain when we've got both of our hands full from all the work that we've been doing. And so what is the answer? Well, it's not laziness. The answer is contentment. The answer is being content with one hand full rather than looking for two hands full and almost killing ourselves by getting those two hands full and once we've got two hands full, being envied by other people. Practice contentment. But it's not that simple either. Because this is actually a vicious cycle. And I'm sure you're very familiar with this. Because how many of the things that we have been working so hard for that we end up being envied for by other people were things that we decided to work hard for because we envied them in someone else? Why did we start working hard for those things in the first place? Well, because my friends had one. <laughs> Why did I start working towards that thing in the first place? Well, I saw it on TV. <laughs> I started envying after this thing and so I worked really hard for it 
almost killed myself in getting it. And then when I got it at the end, everyone else started envying me for it. How dare they? So there's a mentality that we sum up with that expression of keeping up with the Joneses. We're trying to keep up with the people next door with all they've got. Little do we realize that the Joneses are trying to keep up with the Smiths who are trying to keep up with the Browns who are trying to keep up with us. First Timothy chapter 6 cuts through this terrible cycle. First Timothy chapter 6. I want you to turn there. We're going to read a portion of it. First Timothy chapter 6 and verse 3, and this is where we'll finish. Paul says to Timothy, 1 Timothy 6, 3, If any man teach otherwise, and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing but doting about questions and strifes of words, Whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness, from such withdraw thyself. So one of the things by which false teachers were characterised is that they supposed that gain was godliness. People who were rich were rich because God had blessed them. And Paul says, from such withdraw thyself. And he goes on to correct that particular facet of false teaching by saying in verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Don't think that gain shows godliness, but rather be godly and content and that itself is great gain. He turns the statement on its head. Goes on to explain, for we brought nothing into this world and it is certain we can carry nothing out. It's a good little statement to apply to that thing that you're working really hard for at the moment. (laughs) That thing that you're trying to add. We brought nothing into this world. It's certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. There's our solution, contentment. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare. And into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. What is the answer to keeping up with the Joneses? Quite simply, it's contentment. Being thankful for what we've got and being happy with what we've got until the Lord chooses to bless us with more, either by working in accordance with our priorities and where God wants us to work. We work as hard as God wants us to work and whatever we get as a result, God has blessed us with. You usually can't keep up with the Joneses and that's because they're trying to keep up with you. When the Joneses buy an iPhone 6 and you buy an iPhone 7, they buy an iPhone 8, so you have to buy an iPhone 9, not that there was one. Everyone's trying to catch up with the next person. But you know what? Even if you could keep up with the Joneses, it's a snare. It's a snare. Covetousness causes people to err from the faith. That's what 1 Timothy chapter 6 said there. 
You can't just practice covetousness on the side as your side hustle (laughs) and follow the Lord as your main thing. Because Paul says to Timothy, but they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith. Their pursuit of money changed their doctrine. It's a good reminder. Covetousness causes people to err from the faith. And so if we want to love our neighbor, God defined one of the ways that we can love our neighbor, which is the second half of the Ten Commandments. One way we can love our neighbor is by not coveting their stuff. (laughs) Tenth Commandment, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. Rejoice with the Joneses. Rejoice with them. If the Lord has blessed them with something new, then rejoice with them. Or pray with them or pray for them if they don't really understand what life is about. Certainly be foolish for Christians to try and have the things that unsaved people put their main emphasis upon. Surely we ought to have different perspective. We also have to think in loving our neighbor, it's not just in not coveting what they've got. If we want to love our neighbor, we must realize that we are the Joneses to other people. The lifestyle that we live can be a stumbling block for other people. We need to make other people's lives easier by not flaunting our stuff, by not flaunting our family, by not flaunting our house, by not flaunting our lifestyle. Doesn't mean you have to pretend you don't have it. (laughs) But don't make people envious on purpose by showing them all of the things that we have. Now, there is a fourth and a final way that we can show love for our neighbors that Solomon speaks about. And that's what we're going to have a look at next time we have a look at Ecclesiastes on a Sunday night. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord that you are our God. We thank you, Lord, that by loving us and that by calling us to yourself, Lord, you've shown us a better way than just the cycle of envy. Lord, you've helped us to recognize what true love is and what true things are to live for. Help us, Father, to be willing to love those that are beside us in these ways that we've looked at tonight. And we thank you for the opportunity to be reminded, to be refreshed, for oftentimes the world will intoxicate us with these ideas. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time in your word. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.